0: Good morning. Cleary, we got you over here. On the, the 9 o'clock service, there was a bunch of people sitting here, and I'm short. I could not see like anyone. So I, I can see you guys right here, so that's good. Um, welcome to Crossroads. My name is Nathan, and I am one of the resident pastors here at Crossroads, a resident young adult pastor. It is a joy uh, to be with you, and if you're watching online, we're grateful that you're tuning in. Maybe you're at home with your family, at a house church, uh, whatever it is, we consider it a privilege uh, to gather as a community, uh, to study the word of God, to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds as God makes clear in his word. And I thought I would just take a quick moment to give a little PSA as I am the young adult pastor here. Um, It was on my heart and my mind, this is a transitionary season for a lot of people, Right, whether you're a senior in high school, you're graduating, coming into the season of adulthood, freedom, responsibility, all that good stuff. Uh, as a college student, maybe you're coming back to Grand Rapids after being gone for the year, and I just wanted to personally extend an invitation uh, to the college ministry. There's a lot of events happening this summer, and maybe this year looked different than normal. Maybe you were isolated in your room for weeks on end. Uh, maybe it was a challenge to make friends. Whatever it is, I just It was on my heart to extend that invitation to you. So you're welcome to to kind of join in that community. And I haven't looked at my notes. You guys can all testify to this. There is big, bold letters at the top that says, remember one thing, happy Mother's Day. So you can never say it enough. Happy Mother's Day. Um, Yeah, there's a tension to Mother's Day, isn't there? Um, We get to celebrate and uplift and say thank you to our Heavenly Father for the mothers in our lives, even personally for me, the gracious gift of my own mom. Um, But we also hold that tension of uh, maybe motherhood that is desired in some of our hearts or in in the women in this church, but maybe that prayer has not been answered. Um, Maybe there's mothers that are no longer in our midst and we miss them. And so we we live in that tension. Uh, But even so, I just wanted to personally extend um, just uh, a happy Mother's Day to the mothers in this room because... Because of this very fact, literally no one in this room would be here without your mom, right? And I guess, yeah, yeah, thanks, John. And right, yes, we do know, dads, we play a small role in this as well. But let me just, let me just speak from experience real quick. I have personally witnessed the four births of my children, right? My wife, my, the mother of our children, and all the mothers here, you get full credit, Dads don't do anything in that spot. You get full credit, uh, mother. So happy Mother's Day to you. And uh, if we are unsure of where we are in the text, we're going to jump in this morning. We've been studying the book of Romans. We spent a lot of time in John. If you are part of Crossroads community for the last year, you are very acquainted with the book of John. And over the last two weeks, we've stepped into Romans. Uh, Dan shared, and so did Rod, just setting the stage. And maybe you realize this too, uh, we're starting actually at the end of Romans and working our way back to the beginning. Um, it's a different way of, of in, engaging with the text, and I think the reasons for why we're doing this continue to be uh, to make themselves known. Uh, but today we are in Romans chapter 15, specifically verses three through 13. So if you have a Bible with you, if you don't, there's some kind of the backs of the room, and if you have your phone or whatever, giant tablet, whatever it is, uh, Bring up the text, Romans 15. We're going to read it together. Um, but before we do that, I also wanted to mention one other thing. Crossroads has a lot of uh, cultural nuances. There's, there's kind of a DNA to our community. And one of the things sometimes you'll hear is this idea of a locker room, right? What we do on a Sunday morning is kind of like the locker room. We have our team, we huddle up, right? We drop the plays for offense and defense, and then we head out onto the field, uh, to our street corners, to our places of influence. Um, to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so again this morning, we are huddled up uh, in the locker room, and I just want to mention that maybe you're here this morning, and some of the things we're going to talk about, maybe even the text of this Bible seems distant from you. Uh, Maybe uh, you don't believe that this is the Word of God, maybe you haven't been introduced to it, or maybe there's a lot of baggage that we bring in to the text, um, and as we're talking about these plays and we're you know scheming our offense, you might hear us say like Omaha, Omaha, and you don't know what that means. <laughs> um, I just want to extend a thank you that you are here. I believe God has you for a purpose. And even if it feels like we're maybe speaking in a different language, know that you're welcome to wrestle with your doubt, with your questions. God's big enough for that. Um, we're going to speak as a community, as a family, and we're going to encourage one another in the locker room and then be sent out to the field of play. So, we're almost to the text. I can feel the anticipation. We talked about that last week too, right? One more thing before we get into chapter 15. I don't know if you're like me, but my ear is inclined to listen to the ones who have walked it out. In life, the ones who have walked a painful path of of loss or suffering, they have earned... uh, an audience with me, when the Bible speaks of endurance, I wanna hear from the ones who have endured. When the Bible speaks of trust, I wanna hear from the ones who have trusted the Lord in the darkest of nights. And Paul, the author of this letter to the believers in Rome, had walked that path. If we spent much time with this man in this context, we know that he has faced the sword, he's faced death, nakedness, famine, And yet he has found contentment. He has run the race with endurance. He says that he's the chief among sinners, right? Well acquainted with his own failings. But he is even more acquainted with the face of Jesus. This is who we get to listen to today. This is whose feet we get to sit at and learn, right? We get to learn from Paul who is a conduit of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so I invite you with that in mind to stand if you are able as we do here at Crossroads for the reading of God's Word. Again, our text, verses 3 through 13. Uh, I'm actually going to start at verse 1 because I think verse 1 and 2 are going to help us a little bit with the context. We will be studying chapter 14 later on, um, but today, uh, starting in verse 5, or chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbor for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And now may the God who gives that endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant to the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs long ago might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. And again it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will raise will rise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can grab a seat. All right, so this morning we're gonna mind the text. I encourage you, uh, have your Bible in front of you. If you take notes, be right there, lean in. Um, I know I don't get to teach very often in this context, and so I'm still learning. This is a residency, it's like a resident hospital, so I'm grateful for the opportunity. But we're just gonna hit it. There's a lot to unearth in Paul's words that we have before us. We're gonna seek the truth of the word of God, the wisdom and the hope that it provides. And the first off, we're gonna come to verse three and give us some context uh, by looking at verses one through two. So Paul starts out with this idea of the weak and the strong. Chapter 14, if you pull your eyes back to chapter 14, you'll see that this is the the title of this text. Um, And this idea of the weak and the strong leads us into verse three. Now, Dan and and Rod did a great job of of giving us context, right? It's so important to understand who Paul was writing to, the context of Rome in the first century. Now, the gospel of Caesar was everywhere, right? That Caesar was Lord, um, that he... Provided uh, safety and security. He provided life if you would but bow to the empire of Rome. And at the same time, Paul understands that there is another gospel that is taking over the known world the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at this point in time, the nations are being welcomed into the blessed family of God. Now, there is one family that Paul talks about, neither slave nor free, Jew or Gentile. And Paul himself is set aside for the ministry to the Gentiles. We remember what that word means, the connotation of Gentile. It was the one who was far off, unclean, set aside, right? Not part of the family of God. And so this idea of weak and strong, a lot of scholars agree that the context comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as well as chapter 14 in Romans. This idea that Paul is speaking specifically about the conviction Of conscience regarding food. Jews who were committed to Torah, who were committed to the law, they had a certain uh, kosher diet that they were committed to, to honor God and his precepts. And you also had Gentiles, right, who seemed to embrace the freedom, like Peter even saw in his vision, that they could eat whatever they wanted to. So this idea of food being a, a point of conflict and tension in the early church Uh, There remained in the church communities of these different beliefs causing strife and disunity. You had Jewish Christians, right, who were committed to the law, to kosher eating, and Gentiles who were new to the faith, who maybe experienced a great deal of freedom in that respect. There's also the cultural dynamic. Remember we talked about this, that the Jews had been expelled from Rome, right, under Emperor Claudius. They had been sent out, and so as the church was being formed in the city of Rome, we had Jews who were Messianic Jews had believed that Christ was truly the Messiah they were anticipating. They had given their lives to the Lordship of Jesus. You had Gentiles who had been brought in and you had proselytes, God-fears, everything in between. But as the Jews were pushed out of the city, the Gentiles remained. And so you can imagine that if the Jews were kind of central to the church to begin with, surrounded around the synagogue, having the history of God working in their midst through all of the patriarchs, now they're dismissed They're removed from their places of influence in the community, and there's a vacuum. The Gentile Christians remain, and in order to steward and cultivate the the Christian community, you can see them stepping into those roles of leadership. But now, at the time that Paul is writing Romans, Claudius has passed away. He's dead. The Jews are able to come back into the city, and the Jews return to find their positions of power and influence and involvement in the community have been uh, commandeered by these Gentile brothers and sisters. And so there's a tension of like someone has taken my job or my role or my responsibility. There's a tension of food, like they're eating whatever they want. I'm committed to eating kosher. There's all these tensions. But then also, there's one other interpretation of the weak and the strong that we see from scholars. And it's this idea of the powerful or the ones with power and the ones who are powerless. If you read verse one, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We can understand it also as those who have power, who are in positions of influence and power, ought to bear with the ones who have no power, who are powerless. So I want to paint a picture for you real quick. Imagine being um, a Jewish believer. You had grown up with every fiber of your identity and being being rooted in Torah. Like from a young age, you yourself... These, these Jews had memorized the Torah. These five books of the Bible, they knew with intimate detail, like their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the t- 12 tribes of Israel, the story of Exodus, of God rescuing his people, pulling them out of slavery, right? This is something that you live and breathe. It's written on the tablet of your heart. It's written on your forehead, as the Bible says. It's something that you just, you just sink into and, and breathe into every day of your life. And Christ has come in. He's compelled your heart. And you've given your life over to him. And now you're sitting at a table with a brother in the Lord, in Jesus. Perhaps a Gentile who doesn't know who Abraham is. Who doesn't know who Jacob is. Who doesn't know about the plight of the Israelites in Egypt. Not only is there tension of, of a change of roles and also the food that's on the table but you, you don't even know where this all came from. Like, I can feel and hear Jews feeling like, like you don't deserve to be at this table. Like, you don't even know the story, right? And it's into this context that Paul speaks about a very poignant topic. He speaks about the topic of unity. In the midst of this tension, the differences of conviction and opinion, Paul says what? He says to please and to build up one another. For these believers in the city of Rome, there's no running from each other. There's no ending of relationship or fellowship. There's no running from the conflict. And we, even today as the church, are called to the same thing. Not to run from it or ignore it, but to seek the unity of the body of Christ. I'm going to ask you a question, and uh, I think it's probably pretty obvious, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Has anyone in this room experienced uh, any amount of conflict this past year? Just a little bit, maybe, a little bit of conflict. I think we're well uh, versed in conflict Uh, on every level, it feels like, 2020, and now even in 2021, it feels like it's everywhere. And I wonder, if you have experienced conflict, which I think maybe most of us have, what do you do with that conflict? How do you handle it? I'll speak from experience, to me, there's usually three things, I think, if I look back in my life, whether it be unhealthy or healthy means of handling conflict, ways that I've dealt with it. One is separation. So there's a conflict with someone in a situation, and I don't want to deal with it. I want to run from it. It's just too hard to walk that path. There's no guarantee of actually coming together and finding peace at the end of, you know, talking it all out. And so I take the path of least resistance, and I avoid, Right? There's also the path that I've taken, uh, which is a false peace, right? And this deals with the heart. Maybe on the surface, we have found peace. We've, we've dealt with the, the, the conflict. We put it on the table, and we talked about it. But we walk away, and my heart is still full of disdain for my brother and my sister. My heart is still full of judgment, right? There's a third way. I think this is where Paul leads his readers and leads us even today as the church, and that is true peace, a resolution, unity in the body of Christ. Paul is making it clear. We are not to separate or or seek false peace, but we are to seek the good of each other, to please one another, to build up one another, to find unity. And this leads us to a very powerful question that seems to sometimes elude us. How do we do this? How do we actually find unity as the body of Christ when there's so many opinions, much like the church in the first century, so many convictions, right, that have splintered fellowship? How do we do this? And Paul leads us through our passage pointing to the life of Jesus. So let's work through this together. In verse three, Paul says, for even Christ did not please himself, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you Have fallen on me. See, in this passage, in this verse, uh, Paul is actually quoting Psalm 69. And you can best believe that the Jewish listeners to his letter, through the voice of Phoebe, knew exactly where he was going. Back in Psalm 69, David, King David, is speaking, praying to God, imploring him, saying, I've endured unjust treatment. The insults that people have thrown at you actually have landed on me. Right, this is an unjust treatment that David is is speaking out, and Paul reveals that this also has messianic implications, because the perfect David, right, Christ himself, he endured insults unjustly as well. This is a hard thing, isn't it? A couple questions again for some mental interaction. Do you feel the need to defend yourself? When the story about you isn't true, do you need people to hear your side of the story? Do you need to correct wrong perceptions of you? Was that insult that you endured, was that unjust and that needs to be corrected? Was the slander that you heard about, right? Was that unfair? Paul is imploring us to look at the example of Jesus, who bore the insults he did not deserve. Those insults are even the insults of our own sin that we have placed upon him. You see, Jesus, in the coming verses, Paul makes this clear. Jesus is both our example for unity and our motivation. My mind quickly goes to Philippians 2 when I think of the example of Jesus' life. Maybe you know this passage. Let me read it for you. The mindset of Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used for his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. This is our humble king, led as a lamb to the slaughter, silent before his shears. I see Christ upon the cross, enduring insults mixed with spit from his mockers, throwing it, thrusting mockery upon him. And in all of that Christ remains silent the only one worthy of all power and privilege laid down his power and privilege he was born into the mess of this world with all of its blood and dirt and stone and sin he gave it all up and you know what brothers and sisters if we claim to be in christ if we claim to be christians this is our walk this is the example of jesus first john chapter 2 verse 6 says this, whoever says that he abides in Jesus must walk as Jesus walked. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a powerful yet uh, short abbreviated quote. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is the example of Jesus, the upside down kingdom, where the way up is actually the way down. We've talked about this in our community, haven't we? When weakness and the poorness of spirit, the poverty of spirit actually inherit the kingdom of God. So, Christ, He's our example. When we take our eyes and we fix them on Jesus and see His life, it is compelling, it is convicting. It's a hard path. But in that, He is also our motivation. Jesus is not just a wise teacher, as maybe the world would have us believe wasn't even just a renowned rabbi, a pillar of moral teaching for the world to embrace and then quote on occasion in speeches about world peace, right? No, Jesus, in his own words, claimed to be God. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We had a handout last week uh, that Rod shared with us about the difference between religion, right, and our faith walk with Christ, And one of the things on there was talking about motivation. As believers, we're not motivated out of obligation or religious duty or fear or insecurity, but out of a grateful joy and love for Christ. Because, why do we love Christ? Because from the very beginning, way back in Eden, when the way to Eden was shut and the poison of sin crept into the earth, God had a plan in place, a hero it would be one for the many, a new Adam, a perfect King David, who would take the death my sin deserved and bear it upon himself. Brothers and sisters, there is great joy to be found in desperation. To the extent that I recognize my own need for a Savior is the extent to which the gift of scandalous grace that God gives me, it overwhelms my heart the more I recognize the distance between my depravity and God's holiness. The cross of Christ fills that gap and brings me great joy. Jesus talks about this in Luke 7 in his parable when he describes about those who have been forgiven little, they love little. But those who have been forgiven much love much. Do you know how much you've been forgiven? For me to see the vastness of my failings just laid out in front of me, to witness it all swallowed up in the cross of Christ, it creates in me a heart of abounding gratitude and joy. As Christians, whether we're in this room, whether we're watching online, whether we're on the other side of the the world, whether we're down the street, the one thing we have in common, the center of everything, is our experience of Christ, his example and his motivation. Paul continues in the text... Look down with me, lest we forget this truth. Scripture, from the first page to the last, is here to guide us, to offer us encouragement and hope. Verse four, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures, in the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. See, Paul's words, for me, take me right back to the road to Emmaus right? On Luke chapter 24, Jesus' words to the despairing disciples on that path, he opens their eyes to recognize that it's all about him. It's all about Christ. The longing to return to Eden, the championing of kings over and over only to see them fail in the lineage of Israel and Judah, the promises of the prophets, this anticipation of rescue, of salvation, of a Messiah, of a lasting shalom, that would still the waters of chaos. And we live in this still, don't we? In the already not yet, that Christ has come, that he has brought the kingdom of God, and yet we still anticipate him to return. All of this, brothers and sisters, is for our good. Paul tells us that scriptures, the scriptures themselves offer and provide encouragement and hope, and that is granted by God himself. Verse five, may the God who gives the endurance and encouragement give you what? The same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. See, the Bible, it captivates our hearts because we long for that hero. Even if we're grown up, there's still something inside us like Star Wars, the new hope. We're looking for hope, right? Hope is sometimes hard to come by. When we look at the Bible, there is hope. There's the encouragement of scripture that carries us through those dark nights, it satisfies our thirsty souls. And how does it satisfy our thirsty souls? Because this word, in its entirety, leads us to one place, and that is living water, Christ Jesus himself. Do you remember his words? The one who drinks from this well, Jesus speaking of himself, will never thirst again. My time in Israel, uh, Jan and I went back in 2014, which feels like a lifetime ago, Um, but you get to experience uh, on the trips that Rod and Libby lead here from Crossroads, you get to experience a lot of different parts of the nation of Israel, the countryside, uh, the beauty of Galilee, uh, it's incredible, especially when you get to connect uh, the visceral real experience of that sea with what I've grown up to learn and hear about in God's word. Uh, Jerusalem is an incredible place where all of these religions are huddled around these places of of importance uh, to their faith and their belief. There's there's people from every tribe and tongue, and it has so much history, and it's just so thick. Um, And yet, with all of that experience, there's one place that captivated my heart like no other when I was in Israel. And I think maybe for some of you, if you've been to Israel, you might agree. And it is the wasteland, the desert. See, the desert is a place that taught me something. It stripped away all of my distractions and it left me with only my need. You hike out into the desert like eight miles, 10 miles, and you have water on your back. And guess what? If you don't have water in the desert, sorry, uh, you will die very fast. (laughs) You will die very fast. You're very aware uh, that death is only a step away. And yet Jesus paints this picture that he, in the desert, in our desperate need, when we go out and feel like we're at the very end of ourselves, he says, you can find me there and I am a river of rushing water that brings life to the wasteland. As we continue on in this passage, Paul continues to weave this understanding to his audience, both Jew and Gentile. He reminds his whole audience that God has been so very faithful. Look with me, In verse eight, for I tell you, and this is probably specifically to the Jewish audience, that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. All of you who know the story, who've been here since the beginning, it's just entrenched in you. God is still faithful to you. You have the blessing of the patriarchs. But Paul continues. He reminds the Jews and brings the Gentiles into the conversation by saying, Israel, you've been blessed to be a blessing. Look with me in verse nine. Moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy because they've always been part of the plan. Do you see it? The Gentiles will praise my name. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the people extol him. The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will Hope. See, when Jesus was here on earth, his earthly ministry with his disciples, as he even said, was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, ministering to the needs of the Jews. And yet Paul in and of himself knows that he's been given the mantle of ministry to the Gentiles, right? All are being brought into the family of God. Israel, you've been blessed to be a blessing that those who are far off, the unclean, right? The ones without power will be brought close and brought near. And with all this being said, I think we arrive at the true heart of Paul's message in this chapter. What he wants to convey to the church in Rome, his aim and the pinnacle of his passionate words. Look with me again in verse five through seven. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that remind you of anything? One mind, one voice. And we spent so much time in John, do we remember Jesus' prayer for the believers? Does it sound familiar? John chapter 17, what did Jesus pray? That they, the believers, would be one as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. Paul's words continue to push into us this common theme, whether Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, that unity comes through the shared experience and reality of one thing, and that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is something incredibly powerful about a shared experience, isn't there? Now, if I say the words in and out to you, does that hold any weight? Maybe a few people are, yeah, okay. Okay. Some people don't, okay. So uh, the shared experience of a double-double animal style is like a spiritual experience, I feel like. those. So in and out if you're unfamiliar, uh, I grew up on the West Coast. It's a, a burger chain um, that is an incredible place. If you ever get to go to the West Coast, seek it out. But for those who've experienced it, it's a common theme, right? It brings us together. And even though that's a, a simple and kind of uh, uh, a bit of a joke in the example of a common theme, experience. Paul is imploring us not to abandon the one thing that give us, gives us unity in the church, the common experience of Christ Jesus. And honestly, church, I think oftentimes we make a mess of this. I mean, how often do I leave the fruit of the Spirit at the door because my zeal has no room for patience? My zeal has no room for kindness? My zeal has no room for self-control? I wonder in this room, uh, if I ask you to raise your hand, don't worry, I won't. I I wonder, who here has experienced trauma in the church? I love this community. Jan and I have been here for 12 years. I can testify to you that my life has been greatly impacted by the love and the grace and the forgiveness of this community. It's been transformative. But there is also another truth that I've been failed here. This community at times, whether in personal relationships, I've been failed. And also another truth, I have failed others in this body, in this community. But there is a theme here, and I want you to listen to this. Paul wants so much for the church in Rome and for every reader of his words for the past 2,000 years to hear this. There is only one who will not fail you. One, and his name is Jesus It is him and him alone that we must place our trust and our hope. Do you see the commonality, the common experience of coming to him? Paul says, seek the same attitude of mind that Christ Jesus had. The one who endured all the failings of the world. Here's the deal. We can endure failings from our brothers and our sisters because we have taken hold of the one who will not fail us. We can extend grace and mercy and forgiveness because we have taken hold of the one who first extended grace, mercy, and forgiveness to us. Amen? Praise God for his, the riches of his mercy, for his kindness that leads my life to the joy of repentance, day after day after day after day. And to the watching world, I think oftentimes we put on display infighting or our arrogance or our pride My need to be right. Does this weigh heavy on us this morning, church? See, Paul is not seeking uniformity. We've said this before. There are differences of conviction in this church in Rome. But as a family, Paul is imploring us, accept one another. Paul cares for our witness and he also cares for the unity of the body of Christ. That with one heart, one mind, one voice, we would glorify God. I think oftentimes We gather up our theology and our doctrine and our convictions and we bring them to Jesus when really, as I read Paul, I think he's asking us to do the opposite, to come to Christ Jesus. All of us who claim him as Lord come to him empty-handed. Allow him to fill us up. Allow him to humble us, to give us his same attitude that we would bear with the failings of one another. Do we desire this unity as a church that flows out into humble, selfless, loving table fellowship? Do we desire unity? Maybe in a, a community we've decided to separate ourselves from. Maybe a brother or a sister in the Lord or a family member that we it's just easier to, to stay away. Rather, we should seek the peace of full joy that is lived out in the common and overwhelming experience of Christ. And the word continues to provide hope and encouragement, as Paul says in verse 7 read with me. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Do you know how you've been accepted? I wrestled with this thought, and even Paul's own words that he's the chief among sinners. I was an enemy of God. He sought me out when I was an enemy. <laughs> not a friend. It was my sin, my sin that held him upon the cross. I have been adopted. I've been given breath and life that I did nothing to deserve. The acceptance that Christ has, has, has given to you, has extended to you and me ought to leave us speechless. It ought to crush us. It ought to push all arrogance and pride out of us. And in that crushed place, In that low and humbling posture, Paul reminds us that if we look around, guess what we'll see? We'll see the church, the followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 13 May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I see it like this family. There's a cloud, it's full of unrest and striving and comparison, and piousness, and noise. It's everywhere. It lingers. But when we meet Christ, when we follow his example and his motivation, his leading to the low and humble place, our eyes dip below the cloud, and we see each other. Across political divides, across racial divides, across all divides, we feel the hope and the joy and the peace of unity in that humble place that only Christ can take us to. We don't deserve any of it and yet we're given everything. Christ satisfies. He graciously humbles us. He teaches us contentment and joy. He opens our eyes to the gift of himself where everything is being stripped away. All the idols, all the false hopes, all the selfish ambition, and the vain conceit, we're led into the desert. And when we are, We think we're alone, but we're not. We find something in the desert Christ Himself. I want you to listen to this as we get ready to close. I believe with my whole life that the pull of Christ is far stronger than the push of our individual judgments and opinions. It is far stronger than tribes and tongues and empires. And what is the pull of Christ? Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the earth. All the riches of his mercy and grace have been lavished upon us, brothers and sisters. I leave you with these words, this poem. Out of the darkest night and up from the longest winter, walking upon the face of the deep, hope stirred. In the dark and desolate place of our sin, hope won the war we could not. All bonds of decay and death swallowed up in his perfect and unfailing love. This is rest for the weary. This is hope for the hopeless. And that hope, brothers and sisters, he has a name Jesus Christ, making all things new. For he is not dead, but alive forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us. I believe, help my unbelief. I want to follow after you, Jesus. Your compelling model of life. And yet I fail all the time, Lord. My pride gets in the way. I make judgments about my brothers and sisters. I forget the humbling truth that you loved me when I was far off. When I was an active enemy to you, you took it upon yourself to draw me near. As I hurled insults upon you at the foot of that cross, you bore them, the injustice of them, you took them because of your great love. I'll praise the name of Christ Jesus, the name above all names. We thank you, Lord, for the power and the encouragement and the hope of your word. What a gift it is. And we know we can only pray to you. We can only come into this place, into your presence, through one name, and it is that name that is above all names the lamb that was slain, worthy. It's in the name of Jesus that.